Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. New life that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you're not free today, if you haven't, I pray, I pray you'll hear something today that'll turn your heart. It's a great morning. It's a great morning. I love uh, Brother uh, Barry's enthusiasm when he came up here talking about our worship and our praise. I loved it because I'm right there with him. I can't even sometimes hear myself sing because, you know, I'm not very gifted there. But in church, really, I can be up there in the front row blasting out, loving the Lord, singing with all my heart. And you know what? It just flows. It comes out. It's great. We're one when we're worshiping together, and it's just fantastic. I love it. And I, uh, if you're new with us, if you're visiting, we just love to, to praise the Lord. And if uh, that's something you love, I'm glad you're here. And if not, you can get to love it because our God is good, and he's worthy, and he's worthy of all of our praise. Uh, I want to uh, just make mention this morning, if you hadn't heard, that our school, Parkway Christian School, the uh, boys' baseball team, they're district champs, okay? They're defending state champions. They were the state champs in 2016, and maybe they're on their way again. Well, we're behind them. They're district champs, and I was glad to see that. Uh, Are you ready? Are you ready this morning for an encounter with the love of a life-changing God? Good, I'm glad to hear that. How many saw that when you walked in this morning? Oh, not too many hands. Not too many hands. You know, there was a video running at 10 o'clock, and it said things just like that. Are you ready for an encounter with the love of a life-changing God? You know, something starts here at 10 a.m., and I'd love for you all to be in here. So try not to trickle in. I'm just kindly reminding you we start at 10 And there's something happening here in our sanctuary. His name is Jesus Christ. And we're inviting his spirit right at 10 o'clock. Don't miss a second of it. Because in him, through him, we are redeemed. And of course, that was something else I was seeing up there this morning, right when we began. It's it's his name, the powerful name of Jesus Christ that we rely on. Uh, Last week, We talked a little bit about uh, some of the hate and craziness and perversion and just the the awful evil that's in the world and these, uh, these terrorists. And now again, last night, you know, I turned on uh, the the TV late and see again, London now hit by, uh, by this hate, by this ideology of hate and I heard uh, the Prime Minister of Britain, Theresa May, and she called them preachers and supporters of hate. And she said this after uh, this this attack in London, she said about this this, uh, mode of hate, these preachers and these supporters of hate, she said it will only be defeated when we turn people's minds away from this violence. And you know, I believe that, but I want to add one more thing, and it's what I said last week, and I think we should just continue to keep it in front of us. If we turn people's hearts 
minds and hearts. And hearts turned away from that hate to love, to the love of Jesus Christ. We sung this morning, I believe. I believe in the name of Jesus. And we can't waver on that. And when people's hearts turn and they truly and sincerely believe in Jesus Christ, well, that love can change and turn hate. So we need to just keep that prayer in front of us. We can't waver on that. We cannot waver on, I believe in Jesus Christ. We've been talking about life. I started this little series about life with the idea, the premise, that life needs to be centered, focused completely on Jesus Christ. That's the premise. If life isn't focused and centered on Jesus, it's a life that's off course. Life, the beginning of true eternal life, that occurred when exactly what we just sung, when death was arrested, when Jesus conquered death and left behind an empty tomb, true eternal life was made available to all. And we've talked about it. We've talked about Jesus staying at the core and the center uh, and that any attempt to live outside of Jesus Christ is no fulfilling life at all. Jesus was the one who said, whoever finds their life will lose it. And we've talked about the, the world and people who are ser searching and seeking things and seeking to find you know, purpose and fulfillment in their life. But Jesus said, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it or will gain it. Today, it's, I'm coming really full circle. Back to that point, I want us to keep focused and centered on Jesus. I want to address this along the idea and the topic of being indecisive, indecision. Jesus once asked the elders and the chief priests that were in Jerusalem a question. He said, I want to ask you about John the Baptist. John's baptism, Jesus asked, was it from God or did it originate with man? Now these elders and they, these priests, they didn't want to answer right away. So they, they made a conference. They huddled up and they began to talk among themselves. And what was their discussion? They said, if we say that John the Baptist was from God, then Jesus will say to us, well, why didn't you believe him? And if we say that John the Baptist was from man, well, we're afraid of the people. And the people will rebel because they truly believed that John was a prophet. So what did they do? No decision at all. No decision. They remained indecisive. And their answer to Jesus was, we don't know. So what was Jesus' response to them? Nothing. He didn't answer their question indecision, indifference, failure to make a decision that leads to inaction, it leads to apathy. And in some cases, in some cases, it can be more of a failure than even making a bad decision. No decision at all can sometimes be worse than a bad decision, and I'm going to get to that. I want to consider this idea of indecisiveness, the idea that in life we have before us, we are confronted with making decisions and having to stand one side or another 
I want to consider this topic using an example from the Old Testament. It's the uh, time of the prophet Elijah. Now, before I get to the Bible passage, which if you want to click on your tablet, pop onto your phone, open your paper Bible, I'm going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. Before I get there, just a little background of this prophet Elijah. Who was he? Elijah was, uh, Elijah was a prophet during the reign of King Ahab in Israel. Ahab came to rule Israel about 60 years after the kingdom had split in two. The kingdom had split into a north and into a south. Judah to the south had its kingdom and its capital was Jerusalem. Israel to the north had Samaria as its capital. Ahab was the king of the north. He was ruling Israel. He had taken over a kingdom that had really started to decay. It had begun to reject God, but it had really now under Ahab decayed into a real cesspool of idolatry. God was rejected. Ahab had married a Phoenician woman named Jezebel. Jezebel was his queen, and she was ruthless. She was a murderess. She controlled Ahab. She, uh, she went on a quest to really eradicate all the prophets of God, to have them killed off. And she turned Ahab into an idol worshiper and worshiping these idols that were called Baals and Asherahs. They were wooden, wooden carvings. Baal and Asherah, they were worshiped as fertility gods. These wooden idols were worshiped as gods of life, as gods of fertility. You can read in 1 Kings chapter 16 just about how evil Ahab was and how he was more evil, it says, than all the kings before him. It was just a spiral downward and downward. When he married Jezebel, he built an altar in Samaria for this god called Baal. He constructed these poles, which were called Asherah poles. Again, all this for worshiping these false gods, handmade by men. And in the midst of all this decline, in the turning away from the true creator God who had brought Israel out of bondage, it wasn't as if these Israelites didn't know their history. They knew that God had pulled them out of Egypt, took them out of bondage, ushered them into the promised land, in the midst of the decay, in the midst of the rejection of God, along comes Elijah the prophet. And Elijah declared judgment against Israel. And he said, there's going to be a drought. It's not going to rain. As a matter of fact, there's not going to be no dew on the ground unless it comes by the word of the Lord. And this incensed King Ahab. He wasn't in control. So he began a search. He searched high and low for Elijah because he wanted to kill Elijah. But Elijah went into hiding, and the Lord looked after Elijah. The Lord took care of him. The Lord protected him. The Lord made sure Elijah was fed. The Lord made sure that Elijah had water. And even a hundred of the Lord's prophets also were uh, taken care of. They were put into hiding, and they were protected from the murderous Queen Jezebel. Now one year went by, two years went by, three years go by, and the drought in the land has been severe, and Samaria is in a really bad famine. And the famine was so bad that even King Ahab 
was going to go out and look for food. Ahab and his palace administrator, this is how uh, 1 Kings 18 opens up. They went out on a search for, for just grass. They wanted to find some grass that maybe they could feed their animals to keep some of the animals alive. This is how bad the drought was. This is how bad the famine was that the king and his helper would go out to look for food for the animals. And now what happens? Something happened on their track to look for food. They crossed paths with the prophet Elijah. And this is where I want to pick up the narrative. It's in 1 Kings 18. It's verses 17 through 21. And I'll read those to you. And remember, so the king and his helper, they're out there looking for food. The land's been in a severe drought. And they come across Elijah, who Ahab hated, and he wanted uh, to kill him. So 1 Kings 18, 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So we see here, we see here in this little passage, both decision and indecision. Who was decisive? The decisive one is somewhat surprising. The decisive one was King Ahab. The word of the king went out to all of Israel, and he assembled the prophets of Baal. He assembled 450 prophets of Baal, the the 400 prophets of Asherah. He assembled them on Mount Carmel, just as Elijah had asked him to do. Now, isn't that interesting? It tells us something about Ahab. Early in the drought, when when Elijah had declared, there's going to be no more rain, what happened? Ahab wanted to kill him. Ahab wanted his head. But now, one, two, three years have gone by. His capital city is starving. And he immediately responds to what Elijah had asked him to do. It seems to me that Ahab believed that Elijah was the true man of God. Despite the fact that Ahab had abandoned God, turned his back on God, he was an idolater, he was driving the nation into idolatry, he was allowing his wife, Queen Jezebel, to kill God's prophets, he was a reprobate, and yet there was no hesitation, no indecision. Somewhere deep down in the recesses of that evil heart, he understood the truth. And he knew the truth, and he responded. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, there's the people. What did Elijah say to the people? How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Make up your minds, make a decision. But the people 
stood mute. They said nothing, undecided. They're not going one way or the other. They're not going right. They're not going left. They're not going east or west. Why? They weren't any different than Ahab. Ahab recognized Elijah. Elijah was the authentic prophet. And Ahab, without hesitation, complied with the prophet's word. He, he knew God's history. Elijah was the prophet. Ahab understood that. Ahab understood God's history with the people. Ahab understood the power and the miracles of God. He understood that the drought that his land was suffering through came by the hand of God, by the word of the prophet. His, decisive, his decisiveness showed that uh, even though he rejected the truth, he knew the truth. And the people knew all these same things. And they should have known them better. The people were supposed to be the people of God. Now, their indecision couldn't be accounted to just some intellectual doubt because they knew all this history. They knew that God had pulled them out of Egypt. They knew that God had saved them time and again. They understood that God's power had brought this drought that they were suffering under. Was there any doubt in their mind as to the power and the character of a wooden idol? I mean, do you think that they understood or they, they figured, yeah, this wooden idol's really got the power to turn on and off the rain. The, the, the wooden idol is the, the thing where the power emanates from. Of course it was powerless. Any rational person will get that. If you watch a tree cut down and, and you watch it carved into some idol, you could ask the question, where'd the tree come from? If the carved wooden tree is the God. Who brought the tree? It just doesn't make sense. And of course, the people had to know that. They knew the truth. So why the wavering? Why the wavering between God, the true God, the creator God, and a chunk of wood that was carved by man? Why the vacillation? Why the indecision? Well, it seems to me that there was a self-serving, self-preserving indecision going on here. If they came boldly forward and admitted that God is God, that yes, the creator God is God, we will follow him, they would no doubt expose themselves to trouble, ruthless persecution, potential execution by, by the hand of this ruthless queen Jezebel. To side with God and to Elijah was to put their life on the line. Well, we can't go that way. So what about going with Baal? To side with Baal, to side with Baal might result in more serious judgment. They understood that the judgment of God brought the drought. There couldn't be any doubt in their mind. They were suffering near starvation because they hadn't had any water. Well, if they side with Baal, what's going to happen? Elijah might, Elijah might bring a word against them that's even harsher. Elijah might bring something against them that they're never going to get any water. They're never going to get any food. They're going to starve completely to death. So to side with Baal was to put their life on the line. I can't go there. Can't go side with God. We might get persecuted, put our life on the line. Can't go with Baal. Judgment might come harsher, put our life on the line. And yet these people were supposed to be people who knew the truth. 
but they were motivated by fear. They were motivated by fear. They had this self-serving, self-preserving indecision in their hearts, and it drove them to this place of indifference where they couldn't make a decision. The worship of Baal, that was the religion of the kingdom. It was the religion of the world, if you will. It was backed by the fashion of the day, the culture of the day. It was supported by the ruling class. It was popular with the elite of the time. And there were plenty of people that would give you a good word about Baal. And then remember, too, there was Jezebel, ready to enforce the worship of Baal at any cost. So those who dared to worship the Lord had to be prepared to be scorned, condemned, tormented. And isn't that the same reason people who count themselves as people of God fall into a state of indecision even now? Fear, self-preservation. This is a self a self-preserving mindset to come boldly forward and to proclaim the name of God, to come boldly forward and to say, Jesus, it might have a cost. You want that promotion at work, but to take a stand for Jesus, it might mean a lost opportunity. Now, to be, to be committed to your faith in the classroom to be committed in, to your faith in the neighborhood, it opens you up to ridicule, ridicule of your peers, insults, shunning. In life, our faith and our, and our commitment to Jesus Christ, it's going to be tested. It's going to be tested. Our commitment to Jesus will be tried. At the end of the uh, school here, the school year here at Parkway Christian School, they, they always have uh, what they call a senior chapel. They let the senior students lead a chapel for all the underclassmen. And so this year, I attended the senior chapel. And the topic for the seniors was choices. So several of the students, the senior students, a good number of them, as a matter of fact, they made these impassioned presentations to their underclassmen. And the theme was, it was very consistent across the board. Stay true to Jesus. Worship him. Pray to him. Stick with him. Some of the students expressed bad times that they went through, times when they made wrong decisions, what brought them back on track. I mean, there was enthusiasm. There was earnestness. There was passion. And it was thick and it was palpable. And my prayer for them that day and my prayer continued for them is that that zeal, that energy, that enthusiasm remains solid as they go out into the world. And I want it to stick as they step into their futures because the culture is not welcoming to Christians. Baal is the religion of our culture. And it might not be wood that's being idolat uh, made an idol. It might not be clay figures that are being worshipped. But the religion of Baal is the religion of the culture nonetheless. Idols are set up, whether it's the race for money, whether it's the striving for stuff, to be surrounded with comfort and pleasure and entertainment. I've seen these uh, commercials that say you can take your TV with you now everywhere. You know, it's not enough that you sit down and be entertained at home. You can, you can take your, get the app, get, get, get the cable company's app, and you can watch that show everywhere you go. You never have to disconnect. Hey, listen, if you're binge watching some series, doesn't matter if you're going to visit somebody, take it with you. It's amazing. We just got to be entertained all the time. And then there's the craze for popularity and status that's fueled. It's fueled 
by this look at me, this look at me industry of social media. How many likes did I get? How many likes did I get? How many people are watching me? Again, it's just this craze for status and, and popularity. There's this eager, breathless panting for something new. The worship of self, the worship of tolerance, the worship of accepting all things. This is this is the idol of the culture. This is the uh, religion of Baal in this time and, and in this country. And yes, people are stepping out into it, young people, and I want them to remain committed to Jesus Christ. I want every one of us to remain committed to Jesus Christ in a culture that substitutes everything for God. That's what we live in. It, it, and this is what's driving academia, this worship of tolerance, this worship of accepting everything. It's the focus of many companies and industries. And I want us to all remain committed, not in a state of indecision. When, when we're confronted by the religion of Baal, will we waver? Will we become mute? are we going to side with the Lord Jesus Christ? I, I was reading an article earlier this week that has now gone uh, national, and I've seen it on uh, many news programs, but it's an example from right here in our own state, a uh, man named Steve Tennis and his family. They live on an orchard in Charlotte, Michigan, he grows apples and peaches and blueberries and sweet corn. He's got a beautiful orchard. And in that beautiful setting, he has carved out a little spot where uh, he put a little trellis and some chairs, and he would uh, rent that space out and host weddings. Now, you might know where this is going. He was asked if he would rent that space to a same-sex couple. And he kindly said no. And he said, you know, there's a couple of other orchards around here. They're very comparable, and they will accommodate you. And he said it was a civil discussion with these people a couple of years ago. And then it seemed nothing came of that. Well, last August, someone made a post on uh, his orchard's Facebook page and asked the same question. Would you allow a same-sex wedding on your orchard, and he replied on his Facebook page much in the same way. He said, I'm a, a person of faith. My family uh, are people of faith. We are uh, Roman Catholic, and we define marriage as between one man and one woman. So no, I'm not going to host that kind of wedding here, but you can go to these other orchards around, and they'll accommodate you. And uh, so he referred them to these neighboring orchards. So Mr. Tennis wasn't indecisive. Now, he made his claim, he stood, he stood his ground, but it wasn't harsh, it wasn't mean, it wasn't nasty. It was very kind that he replied. He didn't vacillate. He stayed true to his faith. Now, since that time, in August, he's been for seven years selling his corn and his apples and such at a farmer's market in the city of East Lansing, and it's run by the city. So what did the city of East Lansing do when they found out he had this answer on his Facebook page? They told him not to come back. Not only that, they've 
they've modified their ordinance specifically to bar him. So he and his family, they lose the opportunity to sell their wares in the public square because he just said, hey, this is what I believe. And this is my own home. This is my backyard. Can I have some say about what occurs in my own backyard? But he was barred nonetheless. See, deciding to stay true to our faith, deciding to make a stand without wavering, without vacillation, staying true to our faith in Jesus Christ, that might come with a hard consequence. It might. But in Christian life, let me tell you, that moment's going to come. That moment will come for you, and it may have already come, and it's going to repeat. Which will it be? Is it going to be the world and the religion of Baal, or is it going to be, I'm going to stand firm with my Jesus. I'm going to stand firm with my faith. I'm going to stay true to what I know is the truth. You know, on the college campus, at the workplace, in the neighborhood, or as Steve Tennis said, in my own backyard, will you waver between two opinions? To waver between a two opinions, it can be worse than making a bad decision. Making no decision can be worse than making a bad decision. I said that earlier, and I want to wrap up with that. In Revelation chapter 3, we read the words of Jesus Christ. He gave the words to several churches, messages to several churches, but there's a church in Revelation chapter 3 that somewhat parallels the 21st century North American culture. It's rich, it's wealthy, it's prosperous, it's abundant. In a word, doesn't need God. It's self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. So Jesus said to this church, and it was in the city of Laodicea, and this is Revelation 3, to the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3, 15 through 18, Jesus said this to that church, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel, to, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can overcome your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. This was a church Jesus was talking to. Rich and in need of nothing. Where were they? They were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm, wavering between two opinions. Not making a decision to go right or left. Not taking up a stand on one side or the other lukewarm and wavering between two places, and Jesus said, what? I wish you were one or the other. I'm about to spit you out. The Israelites in Elijah's day, they were lukewarm. They had a foot in the world, they had a foot with Baal, and they had a foot with the Lord. They were, they were hedging. 
They were wavering. They were undecided. They were like a squirrel in the middle of the street. Have you ever been driving down the street and suddenly there's a squirrel in front of you? What does it do? It darts this way, then it darts that way, then it darts this way. Do you know how many squirrels have lost their lives because they're darting back and forth? They cannot make up their minds to go one way or the other. And you know, that the people in Elijah's day, they were squirrely. And, and it's, it's true. Couldn't make up their mind, and it can lead to death. Not making, not making a decision can be worse than making no decision at all. Or, or, or that can be worse than making a decision and going left or right. So this is what Jesus is saying too to the rich church. You can't make up your mind. Which way, are you going to be hot or are you going to be cold? Or are you going to be compromising? Are you going to be squirrely? Are you going to try to dart this way and that way? No, self-preserving. Out of fear. Compromising. If you're living a compromising life, if you're attempting uh, to be with the Lord on one day and with the world on another day, if you're darting one way or the other, if you, you can't fully commit to Jesus, you're, lurk, you're lukewarm. And Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out. Now those words seem harsh. It seems harsh that Jesus would say, I'm going to spew you out. But Jesus wasn't totally harsh. Let me conclude his words. Let me pick up where I left off in Revelation 3 with verse 19. Immediately following these harsh words that Jesus said, because he continues, and Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Those whom I love, he said. Jesus is talking to a church. And church, he is talking to them saying, they were lukewarm. They got into this spot of indecision. It can happen. It can happen living in a prosperous place where all your needs are met and you're rich and you don't need anything. And it can happen if your city is in famine and it's dry and it's dusty and there's nothing to eat or drink. In other words, it can happen at any time. And we need to be, uh, we need to be committed to Jesus at all times. Don't get stuck making a choice between the world and the Lord. Don't be like the Israelites who stood mute before man and God. Don't compromise. Don't waver between two opinions. Don't be lukewarm. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. I'm lovingly rebuking you. I'm lovingly disciplining you. Those whom I love, I rebuke. And if it's a, something that you need to hear this morning, if you have been challenged and you stood in the middle, if you didn't dart one way or the other, uh, but you just stood there in that fear, not knowing what, which way to go, Lord, he wants you to repent. He wants you to turn and this morning, we have an opportunity to do just that, our communion time. I want to ask our elders and our deacons if they'd prepare 
to serve our communion. And I want to say our communion time is open to all who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. If you have yielded your life to Jesus, and he is your Lord and Savior. The communion table is open to you. You do not have to be a member of our church. But I will ask that if you have small children or young children with you who uh, don't understand this yet, please don't put, on any, don't put anything on them that they don't understand. Uh, you can uh, just hold them from uh, receiving the communion and hold the bread until we bless it. We're going to bless it together. Now, Jesus gave his life for us. We've sung about it this morning. We've worshiped him because of it. Perhaps you don't feel that you would have been as passionate uh, for Jesus as you could have. Maybe there's been a situation where you didn't stand up for him like you should have. Maybe you haven't been the best example for Jesus at school, at work, even in your family or among your closest friends. Communion is a time that we can confront that. Communion is a time where we can uh, remember and call to mind what Jesus Christ accomplished for us in the giving of his life. He went to a cross to give his life to pay a penalty for sin so that we don't have to pay that penalty. Now, that's huge. That's something we should never take for granted. It's something that we should always hold important in front of us. He gave his life to free us from that penalty of sin. He rose from the dead. He lives and he desires that for us who believe that we remain committed to him. And he forgives us. He forgives us if, in fact, we do waver. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest. Be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So we're going to eat this morning. We're going to eat this meal called communion. Remember that Jesus said these words to a church. So let's be ready. Let's be ready for this meal with him. And I remind you of what we're supposed to call to mind. The Apostle Paul gave us these words so that every time we sit down at this table called communion or the Lord's Supper, we have before us the word of God and the instruction, the reminder. Paul said, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So there's a call to us, right? There's a call to us. Those whom I love, I rebuke. Therefore, be earnest and repent. If you need to do that today, if you've been stuck between two places, and one of them's the truth, one of them's hanging on to Jesus and being committed to him, 
but you've wavered. Talk to the Lord about it before we receive this bread. Ask him for forgiveness. You can earnestly repent before him. He loves you, and that's what he desires. Let's take a moment to all look inside our own hearts. Father, thank you, God, for the grace we find at the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that we can ask for forgiveness. Thank you, God, that our Jesus said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. And God, if we need that discipline this morning, help us to look inside our own hearts to say, Lord, we do repent. God, if it is that we haven't remained true to you as we should, if we've wavered in indecision, if we have faltered before you and we've not stayed committed to Jesus, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. And Lord, I pray that you would empower us and help us to be stronger in that. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Now, as we hold this bread, we say, God, bless it. Bless it unto us, Lord. May it be a reminder and may we never take for granted what Jesus did for us in dying on the cross and giving his life that we might gain eternal life. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. It's a true blessing. May we never, ever take it for granted. Bless this bread unto us, God. We receive it gratefully. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's eat together.
Father, we thank you for this cup, the cup of blessing which we bless, the blood of Christ. Lord, this cup represents the blood of Christ, and we thank you, God, for the blood that he spilled for us on Calvary. Lord, it ended all blood sacrifice. It was the last, the final, and the complete and perfect sacrifice which took care of sin for us. May we be washed by the blood. As strange as that sounds, God, it's true. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, renews us, takes away our sin. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for it. Bless this cup unto us, Lord. We receive it gratefully. We thank you for what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we ask that it be a blessing unto us, a blessing of life, a blessing of fulfillment, Lord, a blessing forever. We receive it together in that powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's drink together. Thank you, Jesus. Just take a minute in your own heart to thank the Lord. Praise him for what he's done. Oh, that he gave his life for us on that cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We bless your name. We thank you.